Welcome, everybody. Welcome to The Foyer, the podcast where we have conversations about Mormon history and culture. I'm your host, Patrick Mason, and I'm pleased to welcome you to this episode featuring my good friend, Colleen McDaniel. The Foyer is a production of the Leonard J. Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture, the Religious Studies Program, and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. You can listen to this and all of our previous episodes at our Religious Studies website or on Spotify if you just search under the foyer. So tonight we're going to talk about the history of Latter-day Saint women. Now for a lot of people that's going to conjure up images of pioneer women or, or even polygamous women. Now of course that 19th century history is fascinating. We could talk about that for a long time and historians have. But tonight we're going to focus more on the history of Latter-day Saint women after polygamy all the way up to, to the present day. So what happens when we place women at the center of the story of modern Mormonism? Uh, not just, you know, too often we tell the story of Mormonism focused on the institutional church and its all-male priesthood. But tonight we're going to shift the focus and we're going to do so with Colleen McDaniel, uh, who did exactly that in her recent book, Sister Saints, Mormon Women Since the End of Polygamy. So let me introduce uh, formally our guest uh, tonight. Dr. Colleen McDaniel is a professor of history and Sterling M. McMurrin Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Utah. One of the nation's foremost experts on American religious history. She's been a Guggenheim Fellow. She's held the Fulbright's John Adams Chair in American History at Groningen University in the Netherlands and a host of other honors. She's the author or editor of several books. I'm just gonna name a couple of them. Uh, Material Christianity, Religion and Popular Culture in America. Heaven, a History. Uh, you might not have known that Heaven had a history, but it does. Uh, Catholics in the Movies and The Spirit of Vatican II, A History of Catholic Reform in America. Now, outside of all of her many professional achievements, Colleen is a world traveler who always knows where the best restaurant is, and I have been the beneficiary of that on many occasions. So welcome, Colleen, to the foyer. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here, and it's wonderful to see you, um, and it's great not to have to go out in the snow. So I'm <laughs> assuming that you've got snow way up there in Logan, but uh, we haven't had much, but we've got it now. Yeah, we've, yeah, we've got plenty of it now. And, and I have to say, we originally, the idea was we were going to be doing this in person here on campus, right? Last year. That's uh, right. And then there was this little virus uh, that, that came along and, and shut down those plans. So uh, glad that we can at least do it this way. So, okay, so I want to jump in, uh, Colleen, and just a little bit of your own background uh, in, in terms of, uh, you know, give people a sense of, of where you come from. Uh, and also how you made the, uh, the choice to enter into the very lucrative uh, profession of studying American religious history. Well, okay, so let's see. Um, I can start by saying that I went to uh, high school in Colorado outside of Denver. I think high school is really an important um, time in one's life. It kind of puts, gives you a certain kind of context. So suburban Denver. I then went back East for a year, but I missed my husband. I mean, he was just my boyfriend back then. So I came back to Colorado and uh, eventually got married. I'm still married, same guy. And congratulations. Uh, 
Yeah, he's thank a great you. guy, by the yes, way. I don't blame great. you. It's great. And then I went and did a PhD eventually in Philadelphia at Temple University, which is the big state school there. Um, how I got interested in studying religion, I've always been interested in the humanities. I, I've always been interested in what makes people tick and how they move in the world. And religion is the perfect, perfect uh, lens to, to do that. It, it, you can study politics, you can study the arts, you can study philosophy, you can do anthropology. So it's very, very broad. And I was very lucky. I went as an undergraduate to the University of Colorado in Boulder, and they had just begun in the 1970s a religious studies program, which was relatively, you know, innovative in those days. So I was one of the earliest uh, graduates of that undergraduate program in religious studies. So I have like, I, I say to tell people three useless degrees in religious studies. <laughs> so um, I then went on to a work in Philadelphia. And I think there I became very uh, influenced by work that was done in history. That seemed to be where the exciting things were doing in the, in the, uh, in the late 70s and 80s. It was the beginning of social history where we were discovering the lives of women and, and African-Americans and the lived religion of, of the United States. And so I kind of decided that if you studied American religion, you could just pretty much do whatever you wanted to do because everything was in America. So I've always been a generalist. I've always liked to study a variety of things. Well, and uh... I remember when I was doing my dissertation research and going in the very exotic climbs of places like Jackson, Mississippi, and, and so forth, you know, Melissa, my wife, was thinking, is, is this what your future holds? But you've, you've managed to travel the world with this focus <laughs> in American religion. That's right. Well, it's true. Every, everything is here in this country. So, and I do like to travel. So I, I take advantage of that. Yeah. So how do you, I mean, like I said, it's interesting that you call yourself a generalist and you have written on so many different topics. I mean, I, I think that's one of the most impressive things about what you've done is, is you, you, um, I mean, just from, you know, sort of uh, Victorian domesticity to, to heaven, to Catholics in the movies, to, you know, to, uh, to, to Catholics and, and, and Vatican II, and now, of course, to, to Latter-day Saint women. How, how do you choose a, a topic you know, to, to write a book about, because you, you also have lots and lots of articles that we didn't even mention, right? But, but how do you choose a topic and, and then dive in, maybe especially on something that you've never really written about or, or done a lot of research on before? I tend to be attracted to topics that everybody seems to know about and kind of people think about and act, but, but, but are in some ways so obvious that no one has actually written about them. Mm. So my first book was on the Christian home and everybody, you know, you ask any person and they'll say, oh yes, I, I learned about religion on my mother's knee and they talk about how important the home is, but nobody had actually written about that. And so it just seemed kind of obvious. So I, I like to write on things which are obvious, but, but I try to take a different perspective. And that is a more visual, a more cultural, a more pop culture perspective. I'm very interested in space 
and rituals and practices. I'm interested as you as you'll talk we'll talk about later. I'm interested in the stuff of religion. And again, everybody knows that, right? Everybody knows that there are things in religion, but people were not writing very much about that when I began in the in the 80s. And so that's what I was drawn to. So I'm, I always am trying to find things that I'm I'm interested in. And where, where do you think that came from? I mean, you, you were raised Catholic. You talk about this, especially your, your childhood and, and, and growing up, especially in the spirit of Vatican II. I mean, you know, we oftentimes think about Catholicism, Roman Catholicism as a very tactile, material mm -hmm. religion. Um, I think we downplay the way that the, the ways that other religions are too, and, that, and that's been a big part of, of your career. I mean, is, is that what it came out of? A, a, just that sensibility of, of knowing that religion is always mediated through stuff. I think it's that's certainly part of it, but I think I'm also it's not just the stuff. I'm really interested in people. And I'm interested in understanding what people think about religion and about their religious experience. And if you try to get beyond the theologians and the elite, you, you know, many people don't have, you know, their thoughts all worked out in a, in a theological treatise. So what you have are the things of people. And so even though I do a lot of work in material culture, I always try to stress that I'm really interested in people. I'm not so much interested in the chair. I'm not a, a fine arts expert, but I'm interested in how the chair helps under, uh, us understand a, a person's religious activities. So that's, you know, that is, I think that's kind of where I, I come from there. So I'm Although I think you're right in terms of the materiality, especially of, of pre-Vatican II Catholicism, um, I think it's more that even when I was a, um, an undergrad, I was always pressing in, the, in our religion classes, well, but what do real people believe? You know, we would be reading Buddhist scriptures, but then I was wanted, and then I was always being pushed aside. Well, you need to be in the anthropology department. That's not what we do in religion. And I thought that was, <laughs> I thought that was nonsense. I mean, nobody believed that. So we just think very deep thoughts, right? Yeah, we just uh, think about things, you know, it's, but that's how the, that's how the field of religious studies evolved, right? It started yeah. as a text-based religion, uh, you know, studies of religious texts. And, you know, people would go off and collect things and then bring them back to Oxford and Cambridge and the Sorbonne, and they would spend their lives translating the texts. So, and that of course comes out of New Testament, Old Testament studies, how Christians did the same thing. So, you know, it's just the way the field had developed. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, the, the first time I encountered your work was through your, your book, Material Christianity, um, uh, which, which, which really is, is a classic uh, in, in, in the field. And, and, and that's exactly the approach you took there. And for me, that was, um, I think I read it as a, as a graduate student. And I mean, it, that was transformative for me. This, this idea that when we when we say we study religion, I think a lot of people just assume that we're, we're studying the texts or, or the theologians, right? The, the ideas. And but but in that book, you're talking about holy water and bookstores and cemeteries and fashion and even Mormon undergarments. Um, and so, I mean, that what do we get um from from studying the, the materiality, the stuff of religion that, that that you can't get 
from from studying the scripture uh, or you know what what the great theologian or great sage said. Well, I think again it goes back to what it is that you're trying to understand, and if you're trying to understand how how people create and maintain religions, then you you need to get to the kinds of objects that they use and how they interact with them. And so you, you have to move into different spaces. And, and we all know this, any religion is gonna have, if it wants to in some way engage people, it has to engage their senses, how they smell, what they touch, how, what they look at, what they wear. I mean, this is, this is, the, this is the kind of ever, uh, average everyday life that, that writes religious beliefs on people's souls. But I, I always want to say that it's kind of a, you have to have both. You have to understand uh, the theology, the text. You have to understand that as well as the material. So you have to have the practices and you have to have the theology. You have to have the, the, the culture of the elite writers, but then you also have to be sensitive to how people are, are understanding that and, and writing the religion themselves. You know, they, people write religion and, and think about it in ways that oftentimes the theologians would consider to be incorrect. But, you yeah. know, that as a, as a historian, I like the incorrect part. Right, right. That's the fun part, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's actually, um, you know, in the history department here, we have a little Mormon studies reading group uh, with myself and some graduate students. And this morning, we, we read your chapter on Mormon undergarments from, from that book. And, um, and that was one of the things that they were struck with was your approach in that chapter, which, which was based on interviewing, uh, uh, I, I think, three, three mm -hmm. dozen or so Latter-day Saints about their experiences mm -hmm. With, with garments, but also a lot of careful historical work, right? S studying what, 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 what church leaders had said and, and mm -hmm. the evolution of these practices over time, uh, you know, how it fits. Uh, and, and then also within a broader context of, of how other religions think about religious clothing and, and things like that. So, so that was one of the things that struck my students was this kind of both and approach, right? Both, both the top down and the bottom up. Right. I mean, that's, I just think that's the more balls you can juggle, the more different things you can throw up in the air at one time, the more sophisticated your analysis is. And, you know, especially, I mean, all religious traditions are like this, but if you have certain limits on what you can do within a tradition, you have to then go and work and do something else. I mean, and that's one of the reasons I was doing, you know, I was doing interviewing was because there wasn't a, there wasn't a scholarly body of literature on, on, on what priesthood garments meant to people, you know, how they understood them and, and, and how, they, how they used them in their religious lives. And so you have to then kind of begin to generate your own your own evidence in that in yeah. that way but that was you know that was a long time ago that was before a highly uh, bureaucratic and tech technical uh, church um, archives and church library and it was much easier for me to to get materials because people weren't able to keep track of them like they can <laughs> now I would not be able to write that chapter now really so I I, I was going to ask you about this Later here, I'm I'm, I'm going to skip ahead a, a little bit, and and I want to read you a quote from that article, and then I want you to come back and and and, and talk about why you say you couldn't write that article now. So in that article in 1995, you wrote, 
uh, partially because of theological convictions, partially because of the history of anti-Mormonism, and partially in order to control information and members, the church does not support free-ranging scholarship. Latter-day Saint archival materials deemed too sensitive or sacred are not open to researchers. Information that might present the church in a negative light is left out of histories or biographies. Theologians or historians who try to present alternative views to the church leadership are threatened with reprimands, disfellowship, or are excommunicated. excommunicated. And of course, you were writing this right on the heels of the famous September 6 excommunications in 1993. For non-Mormon and Mormon alike, conducting historical research on Latter-day Saint topics can be daunting. So I was going to ask if, if you would write yeah. that same passage yeah. today, 25 years later. So what, what do you mean with the, that you couldn't write that chapter today? Well, I think the way that the archives are, I mean, when I was working on the, on the garments chapter, it was, you know, an old fashioned library where there were like card catalogs and descriptions. And even though there were things which I couldn't get, they, they had not, it was not quite as well organized. And, and so you could just order things and things would just come and because nobody really knew what was in there and nobody had read things. And, and so even if I, I think that's one of the things people are surprised about sometimes is like, I mean, the church was just sitting on this mass of material that they didn't even really know what they had. No, they didn't know what they had and nobody had gone through and it was, you know, it was, it was a pre-internet day. So you couldn't easily put stuff on. I mean, even libraries were only beginning to, to computerize and keep track, but now you can keep track of everything. And now you get one little sentence and it just says restricted or some other euphem euphemism. And you, you, you know, you can't, you can't go backwards. And the thing that's very frustrating for me is that you'll read texts um, and scholars will cite things which they had access to at a certain point, but then I can't access the same materials. And this was particularly difficult with Sister Saints because all of the Relief Society minutes in the 20th century are not available. And so even though I pushed and I asked and they begged and people kept saying, oh yes, Colleen, they're gonna be any minute now, any minute now. Um, the minute passed, uh, I gave up. I said, fine, you don't want me to see them. You know? And then people would say, well, there's nothing in there anyway. I was like, <laughs> that's the worst thing you can say to a scholar that there's nothing in there anyway. That is a be makes me a beeline to that thing. That's kind of, a, well, let me see and let me be the judge, right? You know? Yes. But this is, you know, just to just to make sure that uh, you don't think I'm I'm being difficult with the, with the Mormons. Uh, when I did work on on Catholic history, uh, I did work in the Archdiocese of New York uh, archive. And at that point, the archive was run by a very daunting uh, elderly sister, which is which is often what happens, you know, somebody was about ready to retire. They said, oh, wouldn't you like to run our archives? And she, um, she had her desk right, literally across, like right where you are, Patrick, from, from me. And that's from any scholar who would come to the Archdiocese and archives. And she would look at me and she, she would say, well, you know, sweetheart or some kind of euphemism, because I was young at one point, what can I get you? What would you like to see? As if I knew what was in the archive already, you know, and so that was always impossible. Yeah. So, so, you know, we, we, we do 
talk in, in, in the field of Mormon history a lot about we're in a new era of transparency and, and, and all those, the, those kinds of things with, with the church history library, uh, new era of openness. You know, people talk about a return to the good old days of Leonard Arrington, you know, and all those kinds of things. I mean, so it, it, what's your experience with that? I mean, it sounds like you weren't able to access some of the sources that you wanted. No, I think what is happening is the history which is being written out of the church now is much more critical. It's, it's less defensive. Uh, the people who got themselves excommunicated in the 90s, you know, they're all going back and reading their work and citing them and, and basically saying, well, yeah, they had kind of a point there. Um, and so the history that the church is producing is, is much more sophisticated, or at least it is sophisticated in that it's taking seriously previous scholarship and not necessarily uh, ignoring it or saying, well, because that was done by someone who is not LDS or someone who is a little sketchy, you know, we're not going to accept that. So in that way, I think it's true. And I also think that scholars can write, even, you know, people like me or other non-LDS scholars, can write very critical histories, especially about the 19th century. I think that's, you know, it's not a problem. What is a problem is trying to get a hold of the materials that the church has created for itself in the 20th century. And that's, that's you know, because it's a problem. You never really know how church leaders come up with a particular decision. Like what were the debates within um, the, the, the hierarchy about something. We, we just don't know. And so that's, you know, that's a, that's a problem. That's a, that's a serious problem for historians. But again, you know, it does, it means, well, if you can't do that, if I really don't know, I'll never know what the debates were, for instance, on the church hierarchy over the equal rights amendment. Well, then I will, you know, I'll talk to the women, you know, I'll look at the materials that are there and see what I can find. So, you know, we, we do what we can do, but, but that's what, I mean, but it is very encouraging the kind of history that's being written. Yeah, that's, that's great. Okay, well, I wanna ask you a, a, a question about a previous book before we shift gears and, and really dive into Sister Saints. So uh, I, I love the book that, that you published 10 years ago uh, called The Spirit of Vatican II. And um, for, uh, for people who may not be uh, familiar with, with religious history, the, the, the Second Vatican Council was, I think, arguably the most significant religious event in the world in, in the 20th century. This was a four-year council of, uh, of, ca of the Catholic hierarchy that came together in the Vatican and, and really reformed the church, modernized the, the church. And, and, and your book, The Spirit of Vatican II, talks about how all of those changes that happened over in Rome how they were received and impacted the, the, the Roman Catholic Church here in the United States. And, and the, the thing that I love about this book, the thing that makes it significant is, is you tell the story, uh, focusing especially on the experience of women, uh, and then telling it largely through the lens of your, your own mother, uh, who you say is part of the, the, the last of a generation, the people who have been raised and socialized you know, before the Second Vatican Council, but then as adults, now this like new religion uh, you know, or, or new form of, of this religion, you know, they, they had to adapt to it. So, you know, but, but you tell this story, which could easily be told all about priests and hierarchy and all the kinds of things that, that, that we've been talking about before. You, you talk about women's commitment to Catholicism, women's participation 
um, in, in this church. So, um, so when you look back at that book 10 years later, um, what do you, what, what still stands out to you about that, that, that process and what you learned in, in terms of focusing on women's experience with Vatican II? Well, I mean, one of the things that seems, I mean, I, I guess I would say it's kind of unfortunate is Catholics don't buy books and Catholics don't read books and Catholics are not writing books about Catholic, you know, 20th century social history. So we still don't have a lot of books on, you know, the religious history of, of average Catholic women. Um, I'm working in a project now on the on the on the uh, clerical sex abuse uh, problem, and I'm trying to get background to try to understand the context of of families when these kinds of horrible things happen. And I'm just amazed at how you know still very limited the the material basis on this. So I think Catholicism is still both in terms of religious practice and also in terms of even scholarship, it's still very heavily oriented towards um, uh, clerical activities and uh, theological concerns. Um, and, and it's not really so interested in uh, the, the lives of, of average Catholics. Part of it is, I mean, as you know, as you know, part of it has to do with the lack of, of materials. So there are billions of LDS women who've got diaries because the church encourages them to, to, to write these things down. And sometimes they're really sentimental and kind of romantic and not very accurate. And sometimes they're really earthy and to the point. And the LDS church saves these things and treasures these things. Um, and it's very centralized. You know, you can come to Salt Lake and you can read stuff. And then if you're really adventurous, you can go south to BYU and read even more stuff. But then you've pretty much covered, you know, the We're thing. north up here to Logan. We've got some good stuff too. And up, there you go. You're, you're, you're great. But every by uh, canon law, every diocese has to have its own archives. And so that means, you know, and typically what they do are save the papers of bishops, the bishops. And so then, and there are many, many, many Catholic colleges and they have things, it's just hard to do that, that kind of research. And much of the art, many of the articles that I've written on Catholic topics, you know, that means I've gone to parishes and gone into basements and opened up closets and read about, you know, their ladies fair, you know, mm -hmm. how they raise money raffling things in the in you know in the 19th century and that's kind of the really low level work that has that has to be done and unfortunately i i don't really feel like this has changed so much um i think that's still kind of a problem yeah i mean it, it, you know when, when you talk about that I, I think about the the books that i have read there are some terrific books about catholic women but most of them now that i think about it they're nuns Right. Yeah, there There's is some great scholarship on nuns. Yes. And again, it, a lot of it has to do with archives, you know, so yeah. Catholic religious orders save their materials and there there's some discrete archives that you can work with. I mean, there are so, certainly notable exceptions. I, I mean, you know, Robert Orsi's work on on St. Jude and the work that he's done is is just unbelievably, you know, fantastic. Uh, I just reviewed a book by Mary Hennold about uh, Catholic lay women. So there are a few, you know, there are, there's some, you know, there's some great materials, 
But, yeah. you know, it's interesting. My Vatican II book didn't sell. Mm. You know, it, it disappointed the publisher. And, and even my own family didn't read this book. <laughs> and so, you know, and I- Even though it's sent, about your mom, right? Yeah, and I sent copies to the people I talked about and even they didn't read it. So I don't know what's, well, I have some ideas about what's going on, but, you know, it's, it's a it's a it's an interesting culture. It's a different. Wow, culture. That's, that's that's so fascinating. I mean, so whereas uh, as you say with Latter Day Saints, I mean, even though it's so much smaller than Catholicism, I mean, it doesn't even compare numerically. Right. But I remember us talking one time at lunch, and you just reveling in the fact that there were all these women's diaries and yes. other things to, to 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 read that you just hadn't encountered in the study of yeah, Catholicism. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because. You know, people have said, oh, you know, women, Mormon women have been silenced, you know, their voices are silenced and, you know, they haven't been allowed to speak. But that's that's absolutely that's not true. They have spoken a whole lot. There's so much stuff. There's a lot of stuff. It's just nobody listens. It's, they speak, but nobody listens. So there's a lot of primary source material. There's a ton of primary source material. But there's almost no analysis. There's no interpretation. There's no, you know, very little history. And even the, you know, the Relief Society magazine, which has got short stories in it and all, you know, articles and all sorts of creative ways that women are speaking, you know, no one has like written about it. No one has tried to understand, well, what are these women saying in all these short stories that they're publishing or reams of poetry that they're publishing? You know, what is it that, how are they creating theology? How are they creating a kind of, of Mormon history, a Mormon experience through their work? And that's yeah. what you know needs to be analyzed. Yeah, it's great. I think, and I do think we're we're starting to see some of that. I think about one of our, actually a lot of our our master's students here are, are working on Mormon women's history and using those sources, uh, and and sort of lifting up the voices of of just you know lay Latter Day Saint women, mm -hmm. right? So, so I want to dive into the book, and and uh, for everybody who's listening in, obviously we'll we'll chat for a few more minutes, and then uh, look forward to to getting questions from from the live audience. But so uh, so we're talking about um, Colleen McDaniel's book, uh, Sister Saints, and uh, which is all about the history of Latter Day Saint women since the end of polygamy up until the present, and one of the things. Uh, there are a lot of things. I, we're not going to do a, a chapter by chapter, blow by blow uh, account here. But one of the things that strikes me overall throughout the book, I mean, you just mentioned the Relief Society, right? The, the, the women's organization or the women's auxiliary within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And, and one of the things that, that I'm struck by over the, over the whole uh, book from, from start to finish is the way that the Relief Society really changes. Uh, it, it, it changes its, its focus, it, it changes the, the, the nature and style of, of leadership, uh, its independence, its, its autonomy. There are a lot of things about the Relief Society that change. And, and you know, I, I think the history that you tell can probably surprise people in a couple of different directions. On the one hand, there might be people who are members of the church today who think that the way that the Relief Society is now, that's the way it's always been, right? I mean, as humans, we sort of have a tendency to think that way, right? Uh, but then there might be other people uh, who aren't as familiar or maybe outside the church who, just like you said, they, they might have some kind of notion that they've picked up wherever that, that the Mormon women have never had opportunities for voice or leadership or other things like that. So, so 
how, how would you characterize, I mean, you know, in, in, in brief, just the, the enormous changes that have happened in the Relief Society over the space of, of a century? And how do you make sense of that? Well, I, I mean, I, I just, I'll start with the, the late 19th century, because I think the early 19th century has a different, a bit of a different history, but certainly right. by the late 19th century, um, the Relief Society is a, a formidable organization within the LDS church. It's, it's very powerful and it's powerful because it had two important things. It had money and it made decisions. And so even in small communities in rural U Utah, and the Relief Society was always a very important uh, element within the, within the community. And the Relief Society leaders who also oftentimes were there like bishops for a very long time, sometimes you know, for their whole lives, um, these were very, very strong personalities. And so it, it, it was not something which you could easily um, brush aside. They had their own funding, they had their own buildings, um, women did not, not all women belonged to it. You know, you had to pay dues. Um, there was a sense that you almost were the elite of the community if you were a part of the Relief Society. So there was a sense that they, are, that they were quite powerful. They also tended to be more progressive. They started off, of course, as we all know, you know, they, now we know because of, uh, the promotion uh, with the suffrage movement and the 1920, you know, women getting the vote. I mean, they were they were very uh, supportive of women's suffrage. Uh, they had the vote in Utah, then they lost it because of polygamy. Then they got it back again in terms of the state when Utah became a state, and they were always pushing. And you know, it's really important to keep in mind that that women's right to vote was not like a mainstream, everybody agreed with kind of movement. It was radical. I mean, the women who pushed for the vote, I mean, they were forced fed, they were thrown in prison, they were considered to be, you know, uh, Bolsheviks. There was all sorts of horrible things said about them. And so to, to be on the side of women's, of women's rights at the turn of the century was a really edgy thing to do. So they, from there, they moved into other progressive causes, like for instance, the peace movement. And that was really up until World War II, um, the women of the Relief Society embraced what we now would talk about as the progressive era. They were progressive era reformers. And that all really changed after World War II. Uh, the uh, church became began to control more and more their funding. They began to, the men leaders set their um, the decisions. They made decisions for them. Um, they were considered to be only really uh, important in the home and in the family. And they slowly lost their their vo their um, not their voice. They lost their power to make decisions. And I, you know, that might be changing a little now, but mm, not really. I don't, I don't really think that, that there is this sort of same sense of, um, you know, you, you could write the, um, the proclamation on the family without consulting women. You Which is have exactly what happened. Yeah, you wouldn't have been able to do something yeah. locally. I mean, they didn't have such grand uh, ideas in the in the late 19th 
century, but you would not have been able to do that. Or you could have done it and no one would have paid attention to it. Mm -hmm. And and money is a big part of that, as you say, you know, we, we, um, uh, again, I think in the contemporary church, we, you know, we, we sometimes forget just how significant it is the, the way the budgets are centralized. And in my lifetime, I remember when it wasn't always true, when actually wards raised their own money and, and, and things like that. Um, and, uh, but, but yeah, but in the late 19th, early 20th century, I mean, the Relief Society, they had massive resources, bank accounts and wheat, uh, you know, and, and all these things that, that and, and money is power with, within churches as, as well as within politics and every other sphere of life. But it's really important to note that since the 1970s, especially, well, really after World War II, the church became a global church. It moved right. out of the, the um, you know, the Intermountain West. And then you begin to have really an asymmetrical sort of wards, right? So you have new wards that have just been founded with no money. And then you have very rich wards and the church is trying to, I mean, that's part of correlation. That's part of the organization of the church, but they're, they're trying to, in some ways, make it just so that, so that, you know, we're spreading these things around. So a church in, you know, Johannesburg is going to have some of this, you know, basically the same things and that you're not going to have such a big difference. And so once the, once the church really is a globe, becomes a global church, everything has to change. Everything moves in different ways. And so, I mean, globally, the Relief Society is still exceedingly important for many women, especially new converts, because it's so important for them. That's where they learn how to read. That's how, where they learn how to stand up in front of a group. You know, that's how they, they learn how to assert themselves with their families. I mean, there's so many things that the Relief Society, you know, helps out especially in cultures where, where women don't have uh, equal rights with, with men. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things I love about the book is, is the way that you're sensitive to, you know, these historical changes, which, you know, from, from one perspective, you know, th- there's always winners and losers, but oftentimes winner, the winners and losers are simultaneous, or, or, or there's both positives and negatives, right, depending on mm-hmm. which angle you're looking from. Uh, and and, and it's just become what had become a, really a, a kind of Utah church, Intermountain West church, Great Basin church, once it globalizes, that, that just creates a whole different set of calculations. Mm-hmm. And so one of those things that you talk about, again, I, one of the things I love about this book is you, you have an entire chapter dedicated to uh, the 1995 uh, church document, the family, a proclamation to the world. Now, I mean, people have talked about the, the family proclamation a lot. Uh, with, with, within the LDS church and, you know, people hanging on their walls and, and, and all kinds of things. But this is, your, your book is one of the first, uh, you know, scholarly books to, to really take this document seriously and try to make sense of, of what it means and, 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 and to place it within its historical context. You do talk about how it was drafted by the first presidency and quorum of the 12 apostles with, with no consultation with the general relief society presidency. And, and you have some great sources and quotes about that. Um, but, but, but you place it within this context of the 1990s of on the, on the one hand, the, this is the church's early involvement in the legal battles against same-sex marriage. On the other hand, there's, there's a lot going on in, in, the, in the broader context of American Christianity where other churches are putting out statements on marriage and gender and things like that. So, so can, you, can you talk a little bit about 
how you see the family proclamation, um, you know, as, as in, in terms of a moment in time in 1995, but also its, its overall significance for, for modern Mormonism. Uh, the the uh, the chapter on their proclamation, the the chapter where I talk about the proclamation on the family. This is this seems to be what everybody is interested in. You know, I think huh. I'm going to go down. You know, I've got my gravestone in the the Salt Lake uh, you know cemetery. She wrote about she wrote about the proclamation on the family, and I think part of it is that most progressive Mormons, liberal Mormons, they, they're not really enthused about this document, and they really see it as sexist and problematic. Um, and so to try to come at it in a different way, but for me, it was sort of like, well, it seems so core, you know, you can, uh, can barely walk into any of these people's homes who I'm interviewing without, you know, bumping into it on their walls. Um, you know, what exactly, how is it functioning? What is it doing? So I don't want to give away all of this because I want you all to go out and buy my book, yeah, right? Please do. And, we, and we've skipped best. over whole chapters here. That, I mean, we're, we're not talking about even a fraction uh, of this great book. But, but, I, but, you know, the thing is that I think one of the things that I, I stress is that you can see in the proclamation when you compare it with other religious communities that it, it actually is more, um, it allows a space for different gender roles to be performed because it doesn't define them. It doesn't lay them out. And I try to make a point that because of the way that um, uh, the Latter-day Saints understand divinity and deity uh, is really is, is structurally different than how, for instance, Southern Baptists see it. And because of that, there is a there is a different way of understanding the relationship between men and women within the family. And so I, I try to argue that, that it opens up a kind of, because of its brevity, it opens up a place for people to construct the kinds of family life that, that works for them and that it legitimates this you know, this family life. Now it doesn't, you know, it, it's not gonna help with, you know, LGBTQ issues. It's, it's definitely um, uh, heteronormative in that regard. But I think that there's, there were things that people had overlooked. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's such an important document and why so many people, you know, revere, revere its text. And also pay attention to, to the chapter in the book, right? Because, because it is <laughs> yeah. so, so central to, to, to the contemporary Latter-day Saint identity. Uh, right. And, you know, and I come, I mean, I sort of came at that too, because I'm, I'm looking at material culture. I mean, I'm, I'm walking into people's homes and I'm seeing the things that they have around and what's important to them and why that's important, you know, what's, what's important about that. And one of the things that I tried to do in the book was to try to understand not, not simply progressive Mormons. I mean, I was trying to get a sense of, of the, spec, the, the spectrum uh, and, and especially, you know, really committed, perhaps conservative Latter-day Saint women. And this is a really important document for them. Yeah, terrific. Okay, well, I've got one more question for Colleen, but we're about, it's about time for us to open it up for, uh, for the people who are listening in to ask your questions. So feel free to do that using either the, the chat function or the Q&A function. So you can, you can start firing away with your questions while I ask Colleen one more and, and she starts to answer it. So 
So you moved to, to Utah, Colleen, in 1989. Uh, I mean, you were from the West. You're from Colorado. Uh, spent here, but 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 then moved here. And uh, you did a little bit of research, you know, early on about Latter-day Saints. So with this chapter on, on priesthood garments that we had talked about. But but then, you, you know, you, you went on and wrote on lots of other things. What? So, so I guess this is a two-part question. So what's the experience been like for you to, to be a scholar of American religion, but not a Latter-day Saint yourself, then plopped down in Salt Lake City for, mm -hmm. for the past 32 years? And then at what point did, did you come to the, to, to the conclusion, hey, maybe it's time that I write a book uh, about the, these people that I've been living among for, for the past uh, few, few decades? Well, I mean, one of the things about living in Utah, especially since I've been here for such a long time, is that religion is really a live topic. I mean, people have feelings about religion. I mean, they think about religion, they love religion, they hate religion, they've been abused by it, they've been uplifted by it, it's saved their life, it's condemned them. I mean, they, they have something to say about religion. This is not always the case. You know, when I, when I taught in the Netherlands, uh, it was, you know, I, I might as well been talking about Martians, you know, I mean, nobody had, these were like third generation unchurched people, you know, and they, they were slightly embarrassed that I talked about religion, you know, that was kind of something that was a little bit odd, but that's not the case. And so for somebody like me, who loves, you know, who loves religious activities and loves the richness of, of religion, this is a great, this was a great place to be. And people in Utah, at least, I think this maybe is changing a wee bit, but um, whatever you were, you would become more intense in Utah. So if you were a Catholic, you were more active. If you were Jewish, you were more active. You know, If you were an atheist, you were more active. Everything got more intense. And that, again, is great for those of us who are interested in these topics that you don't talk about it. And, and, and your student, you didn't have to convince your students that what you were talking about really No, mattered. I never had to convince the students. I had to keep me keep the and on. them from, you know, but that's the thing also. Um, Mormons are schooled to be polite and to, and to sit there and to listen. And even they really disagree. It's always a problem for me because I like to argue. And my students always would try to avoid this kind of contention. Um, and so I, you know, so there was not battles in the classroom. Um, this, this, but you knew this was happening. And I would often find this out um, in the student evaluations at the end. Then I would find all, all the knives would come out at that point, um, which is not really a great thing, actually. Yeah. All right. So what was your other question about? So when did you decide, hey, I'm, I'm actually uh, going to write? About yes. So um, so I got really tired of talking about Catholics and people only asking me about the Mormons. So I would go to a conference <laughs> or I would give this great paper. Uh, I have this wonderful essay on the exorcist, which I just love. And I, I remember so clearly I gave it in Chicago to Jesuits. I was so impressed. And the only thing they wanted to talk about at the dinner table were the Mormons. And I just thought, okay, well, nobody cares about Catholics. Not even the Catholics care about Catholics. So it's time to write about the Mormons. And so that was, and you know, I'd lived here for 30 years. I have so many friends and it's really the friends that help you out. They keep you from putting egg on your face and embarrassing yourself. So they're yeah. great. But, and I have to say, 
um, the Organization of American Historians gave an award to Sister Saints uh, for being the best book in women and gender history. And again, there you go, you know, like people are really interested in the Mormons, you know, it's great. They care about the Mormons. But you so, gotta do it well, right? You, you, gotta, you gotta know which questions to ask and, yeah. and they, they don't give that award to just any old book about- I hope uh, not, Mormons. I hope not. Right, right. Great, okay, so we start to, we're starting to have questions coming in from the audience, which is terrific. So, so we've got one from Georgia who says, I feel like modern LDS women who may be feminist uh, find their strength and support in small pockets of like-minded women or outside the church. The strength of the earlier Relief Society provided in supporting women in the leadership sphere seems absent to me in Relief Society now. Uh, your, your thoughts about that? One of the things I mention in Sister Saints is I, I talk about, you know, what you could call e-wards. In other words, um, groups of people who come together on the internet and create a, a community on the internet. And so the actual, the practice of going to, uh, you know, to the, to a meeting on, on Sunday and, and sitting with other people, you know, they kind of, they would describe sort of sitting there and fuming and then coming home and then going down the basement of the computer and then, you know, communicating that way. So there, I think that, I, I don't know if that's where the, the the question was coming from, but yes, I think that's exactly how it how it works. And again, that's a part of uh, if you are in a tight community, you don't want to be arguing with the people you see week after week after week after week. And so you create a ritualized kind of conversation that's not really an honest conversation. So even in the classroom in the, in the university, you know, we can have intense conversations because those students go away at the end of the semester. You know, I don't see them, you know, every single Sunday, you know, for years as long as I'm in that particular ward. And so I think people have to be careful. And 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 that I think has just, and of course, in the earlier periods, there was more fluidity, I think, in the kinds of ranges of opinions people were, could have, because their identities were not so attached to beliefs. Their identities were really attached to practices and, and, and heritage. So, you know, it's, it, it's just a very different kind of uh, texture, religious texture. Yeah, do you think um, sort of building off of that that question, that insight, is, what's uh, COVID going to do to all this? I mean, now everybody is doing church on Zoom and all we have is online religion. Right? Well, I, you know, and I also think that I think President Nelson <clears throat> was, you know, pushing people in this direction by by stressing how important the home and the family are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's great if you happen to have, you know, a presider who is a, you know, educated LDS male, but that's not the case for a lot of uh, families in the, in the global Mormon community. And so, you know, the family is, is it's always nice to look to the family, but lots of times families are, are kind of um, not really as secure. And the ward itself is actually the secure place for many LDS, um, especially relatively new converts. Yeah, oftentimes but, rescues you know, them from, from families. I mean, this was the big question, you know, when I wrote that last part and I, and I would talk to LDS women about this, uh, you know, is this going to replace? And they say, no, no, Mormonism is all about boots on the ground. You know, Mormonism is about doing things. 
And I think if the church loses a lot of that doing things stuff, it's, it's going to regret that, you know, Colleen predicts. All right. Uh, okay, another question from uh, Kathy Gilmore, who's one of our terrific uh, graduate students here. She said, uh, you mentioned Robert Orsi and his writing about the lived religion of Catholic women. What commonalities do you see between Mormon and Catholic women in terms of material culture and lived religion? And what can Mormon women learn from Catholic women? Well, that's a, that's a great question. What can Mormon women learn from, from Catholic women? It's it's. It's quite interesting to think about that. Well, one thing they can learn is to find a to find a place for single women, for, to find to break out of this sort of grip of the family, and to be able to respect uh, the spiritual um, abilities of women who who are not married. And so, Catholicism, of course, has this long history of the Catholic sisterhood. And I think it has allowed Catholic women to create institutions, for instance, which uh, Mormon women have not been able to do. So, and it's the same thing even with Protestant missionary women. Protestant missionary women in the 19th century were single and they would go to China and they would, you know, run stuff. And, you know, LDS women didn't do that, even when they went as wives with, uh, um, you know, before there was the sister missionaries, so many sister missionaries, but in the early 19th century, many of them were wives, but they still stayed in their place. And so to, to actually have a, a strong role for single women, I think that's something that uh, Latter-day Saints could learn from their, their Catholic sisters. Interesting. What, what about the, do you see any similarities between, um, or, or how, how would you mark the similarities or differences between Mormon or Catholic material culture? Well, it's hard to say because um, one of the things that Catholicism has, has done, especially after the council, is that it legitimated local Catholic expressions. And so historically, you know, if you were in China or in Spain or in Chile or in Ireland, you know, you had tremendous local flexibility and difference. And so the material culture is incredibly diverse and, and there's so much local art and architecture within, within Catholicism. But um, because of correlation, this is not the case in, in LDS history. I mean, in LDS culture, and there is a similarity, which great, you can go wherever you want. I mean, I went to, you know, I went to church in, in Ho Chi Minh City, and, you know, I could follow, even I could follow along with everybody else, and we all sang the same hymns, and, but, and, but it loses that richness, that cultural, cultural richness, and that means it, it's easier in some ways to study Mormon material culture um, but then it's, it's so also unified. It, because it's so unified, but it's also harder because if you really want to see the subtle ways, like how does somebody, I was in South Africa, you know, within South African homes, how do they deal with things? Obviously, they're going to deal with Mormon material culture differently, and they're going to have different attitudes about it. They're going to use it in a different way, but that's super subtle. And you have to have somebody who knows both LDS culture and the kind of local regional, not even national, but local regional cultures, artistic, musical, like what do people sing at home? Do they just sing the, you know, the official hymns or is there another kind of culture? So that, 
you know, I think it's, it's a, it's a very complicated world that Catholics work in and Mormons maybe less so in some ways. Yeah. Great. All right. So we're about out of time. I just want to ask you one last question. So, so, and I know this is always the dreaded question, but what's next? What are you working on now? Or what are you excited about? Well, I have, I'm working on, on two essays actually, and I'm working with on these essays with groups of people, which I normally don't do, but it's been kind of fun, especially with COVID to have Zoom meetings. Sure. And one of them is a group out of Notre Dame and uh, we're, we're looking at the, the clerical uh, sex abuse scandals and I'm working on mothers and how mothers dealt with, with those issues. You know, what, where, where were mothers? Again, I'm trying to break the sort of priest, bishop, boy um, triangle and to try to introduce um, uh, women into it. And the other is another project with a group of people who are working on uh, Latter-day Saint arts. And I'm looking at the temple complex. So not simply art in the temple, but art that's in the visual, visitor centers. And I'm very interested in the gardens. I'm interested in the history of, of gardens that surround the temple complex. So those are my two. So those are those two projects I'm working on currently. Right. Well, you have a you have a good laboratory with the the remodeling of uh, Temple Square. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. We've got one last question. Uh, just came in. Uh, uh, beat the beat the buzzer. Uh, so we'll ask one more question before we sign off. Uh, so this uh, this question says Latter Day Saint uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints is very caught up in a, a, a gender binary. Uh, men do this and have priesthood. Women do this, uh, but but they're not the same and are not ordained to the priesthood. Uh, the, the question says that LGBTQ people uh, don't really have a space or invitation in that picture. So how do Catholics negotiate gender issues and is there more space to be different and not just male or female? Well, it's a, I mean, I'm glad you gave me that huge question when I have like 30 <laughs> seconds left. Right. Um, all I will say is that um, the Catholic world, gender world is so complicated and it's so much not binary. So you have a long history of men and women never marrying. You have a long history of men doing all sorts of things that in the modern world we would write off as female. You know, they wear cassocks, they like lace, you know, they have a whole, there's a kind of femininity to the priesthood. And all of these things get all kind of confused, messed up together. And it's so it's, it's totally not clear. Um, the Catholic Church has had a variety of different attitudes up until, you know, very recently, it was very homophobic, like many most Christian traditions. Then there was a little brief softening. And now I think it's back to being quite severe. Um, there were, there were, there was a point where, for instance, if you felt that you had a same sex attraction, but you did not act on it, you would be permitted to, um, into the, the Catholic uh, seminary to study, to be a priest. And this, I do not think is being permitted anymore. So it's, it's, it's a moving target. It's a very complicated. And again, it's global as a long history. So it just makes it so much more diverse that and there's a billion catholics <laughs> worldwide yes yes, yes. <laughs> so so naturally there's going to be a ton of diversity so 
Uh, well, great. Well, this, this, this has been terrific. Really appreciate your insights. Uh, and again, uh, everybody want to uh, pitch the book here. Uh, got it right here. Uh, Sister Saints, Mormon Women Since the End of Polygamy. Uh, it's a terrific book, a great read, uh, tons of great stories. And, and even if you know a lot about Latter-day Saint history, I guarantee you're going to learn a lot from reading this book. So, uh, so just uh, to sign off, want to remind everybody that you can listen to this and all of our other episodes, either on the Utah State University Religious Studies website or on Spotify, uh, where you can find the foyer. And I want to invite you to listen in on our next episode, and I'll be joined by Fiona Givens, Rachel Hunt Steenblick, and Bethany Brady Spalding, and we'll be talking about the Latter-day Saint notion of a heavenly mother. So join us then. And uh, again, Colleen McDaniel, thank you so much for your time and for your insight and for writing My such pleasure. a great book. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks.